Welcome to 20 Minutes In, the podcast that looks at the first 20 minutes of your favourite movies and some rubbish ones too. Uh, with me as always is Tom Oliver. Hello. And uh, and I'm Robert Beams. Uh, basically, if you've not listened before, this is our second episode. The first one debuted uh, around the film Pixels uh, last month. Uh, basically, we talk about the opening 20 minutes of films with a focus on how that 20 minutes shapes the characters, the themes and the story sort of from that point onwards what's established and 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 the like uh we've we've had a bit of a um a a chat over the last few weeks about what we were going to look at next uh we're definitely going to look at paul thomas anson's the master Mm. uh very soon but we thought due to various time constraints and things that uh the the path of least resistance would be to do jurassic park right which uh tom and i know pretty much as well as a person can can know a film yes uh well when you the song um, we'd sing along yes (laughs) yeah when you pitched it to me i thought that's a really good one uh for the sort of initial stages of our podcast because it kind of i felt like it cemented our friendship not just in not in the least just being like oh you like that film too but being able to um pull out the most obscure lines uh from the whole film and like actually finding someone who understood what uh, each other meant when you say things like Chef Alejandro and Chili and yeah. Seabass and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so exactly. I thought that'd be a really good one for us to do, uh, you know, get out of the way, if you like, a sort of good um, mood trendsetter for the rest of the podcast. It's, it's interesting as well as a counterpoint to Pixels, because obviously Pixels, not a very good film. Right. And the um, And the kind of the opening episode sort of we, we delved into sort of how the, the first 20 minutes of that uh, broke down. Um, and this is obviously a film that we love very much in yep. contrast to that. And I think we wanted to do something positive, probably alternate sort of a positive and negative yes. as much as possible, but also they're similar ish films in that they're both um, kind of effects driven high concept movies that are aimed at okay right. i mean you could say pixels is aimed at an adam sandler audience very specifically whatever that means but they are both aimed at the same kind of young kind of family demographic right it's yeah. a family demographic young kids <laughs> so color. yeah i mean a more like for like comparison because because obviously pixels aims for comedy uh, a more like for like comparison is probably if we did the first two minutes of Ghostbusters. Yes. But I mean, the uh, which we should do at some point. Yes, absolutely. But, um, but I think Jurassic Park is an interesting uh, an interesting counter to to Pixels to start off with. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so so basically, uh, as I said, because we because we know this film very well, um, the master which I love and which mm. I know reasonably well, I would have needed to sit down and watch, which is where the issue came in. Because I just yeah. haven't had time to. Because it's like three hours long, isn't it? The master. It's, it's just under. I think it's about yeah. two hours twenty. It's it's a long film. Right. Yeah. So um, th- this, on the other hand, by contrast, I haven't rewatched because uh, I'm. This could be hubris, but I, I kind of feel like I don't need to. So yeah. No, 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 not me... at all. I think yeah. I-, I can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah. So you sent you sent me a screen grab of the exact moment when it's twenty minutes Ex- in. Yeah, exactly twenty minutes, not a second more. Yeah, and it's it's basically it's Alan Grant in the jeep looking at a brachiosaur but yeah. the audience hasn't seen the brachiosaur yet yeah um, so that's perfect isn't it that's just brilliant it's like for the first 20 minutes there are no dinosaurs you don't well at least you don't see any dinosaurs i mean in the very beginning is the whole raptor loading sequence um yeah. but you don't actually see the raptor in the whole thing so 
like the 20 minute mark uh, like after those 20 minutes beyond that is when it's dinosaurs just dinosaurs no dinosaurs at all unless you count the skeleton in the like which you know obviously you don't you know if you're going to count that you might as well count the amber that the guy finds at the beginning because there's a dinosaur inside it yeah but, uh, you know that doesn't <laughs> none of that counts so um, I found it really interesting that there's n- none of the, the the hook of the film, obviously. And obviously I'm, I'm thinking about when it's initially released is it's dinosaurs and it's action. But really you don't see any of that until after the 20-minute mark. So, yeah. Okay. So just to, just to sort of um, outline at the start exactly what goes on, you know, briefly anyway, what goes on at the beginning of the movie, I'll go through the opening 20 minutes of the movie as I remember it yeah. and you tell me what I've missed out in okay. terms of just the basic plot, right? Yeah. So it starts off, we've got Muldoon and a bunch of um, park employees. He's the game warden. If you yeah. No one's listening who's not seen Jurassic Park. Yeah, right? I, don't I don't really think we need have to, to go to town of, yeah. on. Okay, so you've got the game warden and all of his flunkies and they're trying to load the raptor into the, the paddock um, with bad consequences. Um, there's a lot of stuff obviously there we can delve into about yeah. the themes that that sets up very early on but then it moves from that to um, the lawyer Gennaro being pulled along on some sort of raft and he goes into some mine where he talks to that um, like Mexican character or yeah. I, I don't know who that dude is I, right. in fact that's what that's the one character in the film I don't know that guy's name yeah I don't know I'm sure the name in the script um, yeah it must be yeah right so you get him he goes in there and then he's like oh we need to get people to sign off on the park and the guy's like oh never get grant because he's like me he's a digger and then they look at embryo right do we cut from that to um, montana dodgson Dodgson scene no 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 no. to the desert from there because it's it's a clever little edit and i have to just say right now it's a very well edited 20 minutes like i watched it this morning so i watched it not 10 minutes before we're recording this so it's really really fresh right and i it occurred to me very clever edit because it goes from them digging in the mines in the Dominican Republic and he pulls out this fossil and then uh, it cuts to them, you know, brushing away the sand from yep. this velociraptor in the Badlands. Like that Montana. crane shot that sort of zooms out of the skeleton. Yes. Kind of yeah. Up. Okay. Right. So, so they're there and then uh, Grant... Um, he has some trouble with technology. Yeah. He frightens a kid because he doesn't get on with kids. <laughs> yeah. And then they then they walk to him and Ellie Sattler walk to the um their little their little camper van and uh, Attenborough's in there. Yeah. And he tells them all about Mucking how he's an island off the coast of Costa Rica and you know uh, how they were saving their champagne for today. He guarantees it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he does then, guarantee it. Yeah. Yeah, and he te- he tells them the you know he's got his jet standing by it. Chotto, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they get, so they, they're going to go there, right? So where do we cut from there? Are we at Nedry yet? Because Nedry's uh, got to be in this oak tone. Yes, Dodge, no, no, no. Dodgson's got to be in this first tone. Yeah, minutes. so they they kind of you know um, just to embellish a little bit. Yeah. He um, he basically uh, strong arms them into coming to the park for a weekend yeah. by promising them that he's going to fund their dig for another three years. For further so, three years. And yeah, for right further three alley. years. Yeah, um, to come see this park because they're a bit like, why? Why do we? Why do they need our approval on a park? Like, what's it got to do with us? And for some reason, he doesn't just come out and say, "Oh, it's a I've recreated dinosaurs. It's a dinosaur park." I suppose yeah. he wants <laughs> he wants the surprise factor because that's what he's about. Um, yeah, but, um, so yeah, then they're celebrating that, and then it then you get to Dodgson and Nedry in the Costa Rican right. cafe. So, so then we're at Dodgson. Um, this is when we know things are truly going to go bad. Um, assuming you're a person who's not seen the trailer or doesn't understand how film works, 
Uh, we know <laughs> things are going to go very bad because Dodgson is some shady guy from a competitor of InGen, the company that is running Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh, and he is giving uh, Dennis Nedry the um, the Newman from Seinfeld. He's giving him a bunch. He's giving him like a briefcase of money in order to, uh, you know, steal the embryos, isn't he? He's bribing him to steal the embryos, uh, and he tells them how they can put it in the uh, the aerosol can, and uh, customs can even check it if they want to. Bottom screws open. Right. N- Nedry makes a very high pitched sound that um, yeah. I used to think was the sound the can made when it opened. Yeah. But if you put a, a foreign language on. Yeah, he makes like a, yeah. like a weird sound. <laughs> and if you put if you change the soundtrack into a foreign language, that sound doesn't happen. So it is not <laughs> Foley, it is Nedry. Um, it's full so, <laughs> it's full Nedry. So then so then he's gonna transport these babies and he's got his can to do it. And then do we cut to the helicopter? Are we flying in then? Yes. Then yeah, that? then okay. it's flying in, yeah. So we're flying in. We get introduced to Malcolm, um, Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character. Yep. He's a, a chaotician. He studies chaos theory. Yeah. Uh, so, so basically, right, Attenborough's got um, he's got Alan Grant, which makes some amount of sense because Alan Grant, his special subject is yeah. dinosaurs. But then yeah. he's got Ellie Sattler, whose special di- thing is she's a paleobotanist. Yeah. So maybe there was a whole thing implied by that that he also wants to. Um, have her sign off on the authenticity of the fauna. Is the fauna also a recreation of extinct fauna on the well, island? This has always been a really confusing thing because the whole premise of the film is you clone dinosaurs using blood from like million year old mosquitoes preserved in amber. Okay, that's fine. How do you recreate sixty five million year old plants? Because mosquitoes don't eat plants. So Yeah, maybe they maybe they're not doing that then. I mean maybe maybe she's literally just there because you know, or oh, why not? Or oh, paleobotanist sounds good. Yeah, and know. also she's Sam Neill's partner, so he's kind of yeah. just like. And I'm, I'm guessing that those two are kind of the head of that whole dig that he's funding in the first place. Yeah, so he's just like, yeah. why don't you guys come along? You're, you're my experts. I just want yeah. expert opinions. You're an yeah. expert as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess in terms of the, the, the the guidebook for visitors if they have kind of a black and white photo of ellie sattler and underneath it says that she's a paleobotanist and an advisor or whatever kind of you know you're not going to question it too much are you as a visitor no um and then you've got so they fly so so she's he's got a paleobotanist he's got a chaotician yeah right and And he's got a dinosaur guy right and then and the blood sucking lawyer, lawyer yeah right so they they fly into uh is the nubler that's the one in the first film isn't it yeah. it's the saunas in just just um, yeah lost, lost world. world so they they fly in and then they get in their jeeps and they get taken to the visitor's center and he meets the kids uh, who come down the stairs and alan's like no oh, no, God, no 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 you've uh, you've done this the wrong way around um they go from the jeeps straight to the brachiosaur and that's twenty minutes, right? Do they? Yeah. So we don't. So we don't get Mister DNA. No. We don't get no, Tim no, and no, Lex. No, no, no. That all comes get, okay, later. Okay. So they go and they see the brachiosaur, and then that, that of course, that makes sense. They need yeah. to see Mister DNA afterwards yeah. because they want to find out how he did. Yeah. The thing. How did it's you like, do I'll this? I'll show you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So that, there you are. That's twenty minutes. Uh, there's also right. there's the little exchange. I mean, it's a very small thing between the lawyer. I mean, it's kind of setting up the lawyer a bit more being like um you know well if my investors aren't convinced then yeah. uh you know i'm not convinced I'm not Shut down, John. yeah 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 that bit. um and that's 20 minutes and i also i kind of skipped ahead and um it's like so i was just sort of getting a sort of idea of the time stamps in this film so it's the film overall is um two hours and six minutes it's an hour into it before things start going wrong because you have to go through like 
Mr. DNA, and then there's the little bit outside the raptors when Samuel wants to see the raptors. There's the baby raptor being born as well. And then they have that yeah. big long conversation about, uh, you know, Life finding a way. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And then they start going, that's when they go on the tour. Um, right. And then the tour starts going on, and then it's an hour before you get T Rex. So whoa, 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 whoa. a so long the tour... preamble. So the tour, that it's actually just before the tour we meet Tim and Lex, isn't it? Yeah. Because they go to the visitor centre before they go in the jeeps, and that's yeah. when the kids come down the stairs. So an awful lot of stuff happens in the movie before we even meet them. Yeah. And this this is the first massive difference, I think, between Jurassic Park and Pixels. Right. Pixels, <laughs> yeah. Which is that the first 20 minutes of Pixels feels like an almighty slog and time you're never going to get back. Yeah. And when you're 20 minutes into Pixels, you look at the runtime for the rest of the movie and go, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> Whereas Jurassic Park, so much has already happened. Yeah. And so much more will happen before the dinosaur stuff really breaks down. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't f- drag at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's a weird thing when I was watching it, and I, I'm, I, I feel like because this film is kind of, you know, has a lot of nostalgic weight for me and, uh, you know, I kind of, it's a bit of a benchmark for me when it comes to blockbuster action. I'm going to start sounding like a very uh, cynical old man type of vibe. But um, I kept thinking about Jurassic World and sort of the, you know, the differences between the two and how, and like, like I just said, it's like how much time Jurassic Park takes to actually get to the thing, the the hook, essentially, like get to the sort of selling point and how much time it spends, like really investing in its characters and developing them in kind of very subtle but kind of strong ways. Like there's little things like in the beginning when they're on that helicopter landing and it's a really small thing, but I thought it was a nice touch is um you know sam neil can't uh, strap himself in because it's like landing in there's turbulence and he can't strap himself in and uh there's kind of a little exchange about that which is a nice detail and he ends up just sort of improvising and like um tying two ends together mm-hmm. so he's and i thought it was a nice little thing to sort of suggest uh i mean it's I, it couldn't necessarily be considered foreshadowing but uh in a sense it's like you know in a sort of crisis necessarily um he can kind of improvise and he's sort of yeah. gonna try and find solutions you know he's not just a sort of geeky scientist who just sort of you know um is obsessed with dinosaurs although he is that as well so it's kind of you know he's very three-dimensional i think uh, i think you're completely right i think that i think that bit with the seatbelt is and probably probably the best individual character moment in the entire film in terms of just a little visual you know without dialogue just a visual thing to show you something about a character because the thing is what you get from that is it 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 tells you again what we've already been told from him having the trouble with the computers which is if it comes down to technology he's rubbish yeah right even very basic technology like this slightly technological you know seatbelt buckle he can't deal with it but he's very practical yeah and he can he can find a solution to problems he's a very capable person yeah and that that does sort of in effect foreshadow why when shit breaks down he's Mm. the guy everybody sort of runs to for protection isn't he he's the he's the john wayne cowboy guy they they kind of play all of the real life paleontologists who he's based on are like like ridiculously nerdy kind of scientist dudes and they yeah. kind of just projected the stuff that one of those people knows and kind of vaguely how those people dress although he looks a lot cooler yeah uh onto basically just a cowboy archetype of yeah 
Although he's kind of, uh, as opposed to the John Wayne, which is very, like, brash, he's sort of, like, there in the beginning, in that stuff, when he's, like, digging up the dinosaurs and he's talking to, like, uh, they're looking at it on the monitor and he's talking about raptors and being, like, they're like birds, you know? And he's, like, he's just, like, a big sort of dinosaur kid, you know? Like, he still has that kind of, like, he's, like, really loves uh, dinosaurs. So he's never just, like, kind of cold and cynical. He's just sort of, uh, you know... I suppose quite inward and like you say he's not very technological but he you can imagine his character loves being around kind of like fossils and just grew yeah. up sort of digging like I mean I know I'm sort of projecting but there's all this kind of thing that you can get from his character in like the first 20 minutes um, that, that just little things that tell you about who he is and um, when he's put in these kind of like uh, life or death situations later in the film um, how he's going to sort of deal with it you know but it's um, exactly but he's exactly the person from from that bit with the seatbelt or him digging around in the dirt at the beginning you get the sense that he is exactly the guy later on who climbs that tree yeah you know yes absolutely that, yeah. that's who he is and he's yeah. he's that's where he's sort of in his element like he's he is almost um he is kind of tim grown up isn't he I guess. yeah uh, yeah absolutely um, yeah, I, th- I think I think that's really well done. How how Alan Grant's established. Yeah. I think that is what when you compare it to Jurassic World, because the main problems really that people kind of address with Jurassic World is that we don't really get to know about or care about the characters. Yeah, and I think that this opening twenty minutes, I think fundamentally what it does is it introduces you to all these people and while the characters in jurassic park aren't the most complex people in the world and when the first jurassic park came out um there are a lot of snooty reviews then that said oh this film only cares about the dinosaurs the humans are just there to kind of be on the roller coaster ride which is fundamentally true yeah right but the thing is is that even in you know even with that said we do kind of know a lot if you you say any of the characters from alan grant all the way down to nedry and janeiro the lawyer and and the kids and all that yeah. you do get a very strong sense of who these people are mm. from from very little that we see with each of them yes um i also think and i think you can probably defend this because i know you're a bigger fan of jurassic world than i am but one of my i think my key issue with that film is that um compared to Jurassic Park where the characters, who they are and their kind of like perspective on this whole situation ties very closely into the themes of the film itself. So you have Dr. Grant and he's like, you know, he's wary of technology or at least he doesn't kind of understand it. And the theme throughout the film is that you can't use technology, modern technology to bound kind of nature and all that, which he in a sense embodies, although it's um, like Ian Malcolm's character who uh, essentially explains that. Um, And also you have kind of the sense of wonder through the eyes of the kids and that sense of overriding ambition through um, like John Hammond. I felt in um, Jurassic World, it was like they kind of just gunned for the very immediate things about uh, the original and just had characters that would play out those situations, you know. And I think that's kind of the fundamental problem is there. I mean, it's sort of, you you have kind of um, Chris Pratt and he's sort of the dinosaur trainer and he's very broadly just like, um, you know, they're they're not assets, they're human beings. And it felt like a very watered down version of uh, Jurassic Park without that kind of complexity that ties theme and character and makes it all one big kind of thing. It felt very kind of like piecemeal. 
um, in that sense. I don't know how you feel about that, but um, I think I think one of the key things is is that um, all of the characters in Jurassic World are the same at the end of the film as they're at the beginning right, of the film, yeah. and that we don't really. So Owen, the character that um, Chris Pratt plays. Uh, I mean, basically, Jurassic World. Because I did enjoy Jurassic World, and I don't, I don't make any pretense that it's a particularly good film. I, sure. I think ultimately it isn't, and I think it's definitely diminishing returns. Yeah. But um, I think what Jurassic Park, what Jurassic World does, is it skirts by on or skates by on um, Chris Pratt's natural sort of screen charisma and presence. Mm. So that what they do with that Owen character is you like him or you're supposed to like him if you don't like him because of the fact that Chris Pratt is kind of a fun presence. Yeah. And that's kind of it. There's no more to the character than that. Yeah. So the thing is, the first time I saw the film, I was swept up in that because I was like, hey, this guy's a fun guy. I like yeah. Chris Pratt. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a fun thing. Uh, but but yeah, in, on reflection, that he doesn't learn anything through the movie. He isn't. No. The thing is, he starts from the perspective, the Chris Pratt character in Jurassic World, starts from the perspective that he is right. He knows that they shouldn't do this stuff with dinosaurs. He he knows why they shouldn't do it. And, and you know, he, he's correct. Yeah. And at the end of the film, he was just right. And he didn't really have any <laughs> lesson he needed to learn about it along the way. Yeah. You know, whereas Alan Grant... Um, he he starts off with wonder for these dinosaurs. He's he's apprehensive about them because of the fact that um, he's worried about being out of a job and stuff like that. Yeah. But and 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 very early on he starts to have concerns when he when he finds out they bred raptors. Yeah. But at the beginning he's sort of on board and he kind of goes on a journey along through the thing with the film to kind of get to where they ultimately end up at. But also even if you um, disregard his journey in terms of the actual park itself, mm. um, he starts off with this whole thing being about how uh, he doesn't really want to have kids. He can't yeah. really relate to children. He finds them. Annoying, and in a very Spielbergian kind of <laughs> archetypical Spielbergian right. way, he kind of uh, goes on that journey with the kids, and that's the heart of the movie in terms of the characters. Is the yes. journey he goes on with the kids? Yes. Um, no, absolutely. And uh, I was just thinking about what you're saying about the whole, you know, the kind of skepticism that all the characters bring to thing. I I think he's the least cynical when in that whole dinner scene where they're all discussing why yeah, they yeah. shouldn't have done this um he's kind he of the one dunk who, on it as much yeah he's kind of just says well you can't you don't really know what's going to happen you know the rest of them are like like obviously Ian malcolm's like this kind of control isn't possible you know like bringing things back and expecting to, it to just be a theme park is just madness and sam Neil's just like well you know probably but we'll see <laughs> he's like we don't really know what's gonna happen like that's his kind of bottom line is you know how can we have the slightest idea what to expect so i think i think the thing is in terms of as i said at the start of the podcast we sort of mainly look at characters themes and story and kind yeah. of all those things obviously are mixed up together but i think the easiest thing to kind of just strike a line through and cover off at the beginning is themes yeah and i think it's very easy to say the way the first 20 minutes of the movie sets up the theme because the the, the theme of jurassic park generally and of and also more broadly of all of michael Crichton's uh fiction as yeah. far as i'm aware most of it anyway yeah um is that whole thing of 
um, man running away with technology that we don't really understand and that ultimately that technology yeah. is going to bite us in the ass. Yeah. Um, the most the most entertaining and extreme version of that I've ever seen in a Michael Crichton thing was, um, you know, in the film of Westworld, the original Westworld, yes. yeah. when um, because the technology shuts down and they lose control of the theme park, Westworld yeah. is basically Jurassic Park like yeah. 20 years before, yeah, because yeah. The, the whole thing shuts down and they lose control of the theme park, um, at one point, one of the scientists in the control room notices that um, the the locks of the doors are controlled by the computer and the air the air supply is also controlled <laughs> by the computer and so um, one of the scientists is like oh my god we're going to uh, suffocate in this room and then next time you see that room of scientists when your Brenner's cowboy walks past everyone in there's dead and yeah. you don't see them again for like you know there's like 20 minutes between the two things happening yeah and um it's it's just a brilliant way even in a, even in a movie where the thing is about how um technology is the Yul Brenner cowboy that murders everybody yeah um even the fact that they relied on computers for the locks of the door and for the like the airflow um mm. has killed people in yeah. other words in other words even if they hadn't made psychotic Yul Brenner cowboys yeah they'd still relied too much on technology in the world of Michael Crichton yeah they were already fucked they killed yeah. themselves the moment they they got the computers to run the command center, yeah. and it's Jurassic Park is all about that. I mean, it's it's like the the opening sequence in the forest um, where Muldoon and the people are trying to load the uh, the dinosaurs in. You get mm. shown so many things right there about how you, you get the foreshadowing of how this isn't going to work. Because already with all those people and all those guns and all that technology, they can't control this one dinosaur effectively yeah. right so you already get it shown to you in a microcosm just this thing isn't working the park yeah. is already not working that's the first thing we see in the movie mm. um but you also um you get to see how kind of even in that environment where there's kind of you know all those guns and everything all that strength mm. they're just yeah they're just completely powerless in the face of nature yeah um especially yeah like just sort of and, and obviously this is touched on later in the film it's like we evolve alongside things. So we couldn't have necessarily evolved alongside dinosaurs because they would have just eaten us and killed us. <laughs> um, so like just sort of like suddenly throwing, you know, the two back in and the mix together. Um, you know, it's it, it's like you say is it's just um, that's that right there is that um, you have really powerful animals that are just like wild and are just going to sort of you know tear through the humans and that's your film basically you know that's premise right there yeah um there's no way to sort of uh deal with them like by the like we understand you know it's like it's not a zoo it's just it's something completely different um yeah, yeah. so this that opening sets up the theme but it also sets yeah. up it foreshadows the story which is this is all going to go wrong Yes. And everybody's going to get fucked by the dinosaurs. Yeah. And also, um, I think just uh, another quick thing is, I think narratively, it's really clever to open on like a kind of a bit of a scare, like a bit of a thrill, because it is essentially it's you know an adventure and it's a, uh, but it is really a thriller because it's like um, monsters. It's a monster movie, really. Um, and I think narratively, that's re narratively that's really clever because then they do spend the next twenty minutes. Uh, like focusing on these little character traits and who you're going to bring into the film before they get back to the dinosaurs. So to open on like, uh, you know, essentially what uh, it's going to build up to, you can spend all this time really developing the characters and the themes and the rest of it. So I think, yeah, it's good, um, you know, instead of opening it in Montana with him digging it up, um, you know, I think it's yeah. good. 
Well, it starts, especially knowing what we know now um, that we don't see the Brachiosaur until 20 minutes. Mm. It kind of immediately gives the audience a little taste of dinosaur straight yeah. off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, gets you kind of excited from the word go. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think one thing, and I don't know whether this would qualify as a criticism or, or what, but it's certainly interesting to think about. If you took this screenplay and you gave it to a different filmmaker and maybe you hired somebody to play At- to play um, Hammond who's a bit less Father Christmassy than Attenborough. Yeah. Isn't everything Attenborough says and does potentially under a different direction following this point, isn't he kind of potentially a very clear bad guy? Isn't he potentially kind of the evil guy? Because um, yeah. you've got this bit at the beginning where you see one of his park employees get killed by a dinosaur, right? Yeah. And then after that, when we meet him, he's not upfront about any of this he's saying to them hey yeah come to my theme park it's great yeah you should yeah. definitely come to my theme park that could definitely under a different director and under a different actor there could definitely be some more indication from the beginning with the character that maybe things are wrong yeah. i mean um, that's not the way they go they they make they kind of absolve that character of a lot of guilt and responsibility through the movie really yeah they kind of give him a lot of there's a lot of outs like nedry getting involved uh and there's also the fact that he's ultimately a nice man who just wanted to show children the flea circus and yeah and, you know all yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, um, but do you see what i mean from a no no, no. View, well it's interesting you said that. a complete shyster couldn't he? yeah because in the book he basically is that he in the yeah. book he's characterized as just a massive uh, egotistical billionaire prick. Who... Well, he gets the he gets the death in the book. Yeah, he gets the death that Peter Stormar gets in Lost World. Doesn't yeah, he? he gets eaten by uh, the little ones. Right. Yeah, he rolls down a hill and gets eaten by compies and can't yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think um, any uh, well, most other directors um, other than Spielberg would have dug that out they would have gone like he needs to be you know he needs to be the hubris of capitalism you know he yeah. needs to be like kind of the uh, megalomaniac corporate um you know but basically the, goes, basically the bob balaban character in lost world that's his yeah. nephew or whatever he is yeah is bob balaban in lost world Is it isn't balaban? that bob balaban no that's uh someone I else i get confused don't I? I think i've done this before said that it's bob balaban and yeah. it isn't it's it's you know as close to Bob Balaban as it's you can a, get. It's a bloke who looks a bit like a Bob close... Balaban. He's a Bob yeah. Balaban clone. Mr. DNA got involved. I need yeah. to know who that is now. Are you looking it up? I'm looking it up. I have to know who who fake the Bob Balaban. Balaban who fake Balaban is because I think I did yeah. this recently. I think I recently said he, that Bob Balaban was in Jurassic World and got um got shot down. Quite He's rightly, not. quite um, rightly, got. Put I can't away. remember the name. I used to know the name. What's names the name of the character? Oh, oh, God! Arliss Howard, Peter uh, Ludlow, Peter Ludlow. Yeah, yeah. Arliss Howard is the actor. Arliss uh, Howard. Arliss Howard. I'm trying to look at a picture of him so I can see. Well, wow. oh, God, the he last... doesn't really look like Bob Balaban at all. I've really just, uh, I've really just gone mad. Uh, no, yeah. I, I think that fits. It's the glasses, isn't it? It's the it's round. The glasses, it's the round it? glasses. Yeah. Um, and he's got a fairly bald head. Yeah, it's fake, fake Balaban. Anyway, <laughs> you know, you squint. Yeah, sorry. So fake, fake Balaban in Lost World. He, um, he's a little bit like, I think a lot of directors would have made Attenborough's character in the first film, right? Yeah. I mean, he's just the, you know, corporate greed. Yeah, I know people's lives can be in danger, but profits, shareholders. <laughs> Whereas yeah, yeah. Attenborough's not really like that. No, yeah, he's all like, I don't really care for lawyers, and you know, it's it's right up your alley. And yeah, um, he's not you know, he's not sparing no expense to make sparing... the most expensive theme park to make the most money. He's sparing yeah. no expense because he just wants to thrill the world. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I have a question, something that just occurred to me, and maybe I've completely overlooked something obvious. But um, how does John Hammond have all his money? Why is he a billionaire? Because it's definitely not flea circuses. <laughs> like... <laughs> You know what? I have no idea. Really? In, his company, InGen, yeah. they are like a genetic science company, aren't they? Right, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, is that was... what he made his money through? He went from the flea circuses to that. Yeah. I don't know how. It, I, I don't know. I think yeah. I think that's a... Yeah, who knows? It's I'm, probably in I'm the guessing, book I'm guessing he's just a kind of venture capitalist uh, and that because he's got so much money, rather than buy a football club, he's making a dinosaur theme. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of always been my base assumption. So basically, sort of theme theme wise we've got this whole technology thing technology yes. bad thing which we even get then at the dig site with grant because he has trouble with the uh that monitor that he just yeah. can't get to work and he's like oh the computers oh, can't we just dig it up yeah. you know and all that yeah. uh and then um you know the belt buckle the belt buckle's not working on the helicopter like you get this over and over again in this opening yeah that technology technology is not so great we shouldn't rely on it so much um you know human sort of practicality and getting your fingers in the dirt and everything good relying yeah. on computers bad that's kind of the the ultimate sort of thing yeah. of it and also i just wanted to i just yeah. wanted to add to that just while it we're on that is that um the, the other thing i like as opposed to maybe some of the sequels or kind of like any film that wanted to riff off um that kind of story arc is that uh, these things that there's no sense of a character like telling you who they are. It's just they get in situations where it's sort of things are against them. Like they're, it's you know he's like even in the smallest things like he just wants to point at the monitor and it just like f- fuzzles out or you know yeah. everyone else on the plane is like can plug themselves in but he you know he's like oh how do I do this? It's not like it's sort of broadcast that he he goes around just going like you know i hate technology i mean he does say i hate computers but it's like kind of an offhand thing that someone would say anyway yeah um and then the rest of the time he's just trying to do things and that it sort of comes against him whereas it's like written very you know in very big letters in the screenplay that you know this person you know can't handle technology and you know ah i hate computers why do we use computers to dig up dinosaurs you know it's just like uh he's just trying to work around things and i really like that as a character trait yeah so let's let's look then at the characters and what we learn about them right yeah i think just in a very basic way let's go down the main like four characters i'm I'm putting the four characters down as grant sattler hammond and malcolm right who we meet in the first 20 minutes right yeah and i think we should just first off think of what is it that they like and dislike that we learn like what, what just yeah. very fundamental because grant's easy right we yeah. know that grant likes dinosaurs um he dislikes technology and children <laughs> that's basically yeah. His, yeah. his thing he likes dinosaurs he dislikes technology and children right he yeah. likes ellie uh you know we know because of the proximity to ellie yeah rather than from anything he says and does. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah. um Ellie Sattler, she likes Alan Grant and she likes children. Yes. What? So she's what, pretty. What she's feelings? pretty happy going on. <laughs> well, she's also. I mean, you know, they have dialogue, um, very specific dialogue about you know, kind of vertebrae and uh, like uh, dorsals and whatever. So she knows her stuff. Like she knows you know, they're both yeah. they're both very qualified. Um, like paleo, paleo, whatever's, whichever's, you know. But she doesn't have as clearly defined a sort of character arc as grant does 
No, not necessarily. Like, it's, not, it's not really there at the beginning of the movie that there's a particular deficiency she has that she maybe needs to overcome. No, I mean, she's um, a, a sort of supporting player, essentially. Um, but I think she's one of the most interesting characters in... Although she doesn't have an arc, like, throughout the whole film, she's one of the most interesting characters. Um, just because, you know, there's she's the one who kind of um, turns Hammond around and makes him realise, you know, like how overwhelming the power is and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And she's given some really great scenes and some really great bits of dialogue as well. Um, like, I, I know I'm going way beyond the 20-minute mark here, but um, she goes from basically being kind of like um, the sort of girlfriend, the love interest, whatever, to becoming the person who has to, you know, res- like sort this out, you know, because Hammond sort of is a bit powerless um, in reality as opposed to kind of his wealth and his sort of, you know, hubris and all that and then Ian Malcolm gets kind of um put out because he gets his legs broken or whatever so she's the one who has to kind of you know fix everything anyway and aside to what we're talking about in the first 20 minutes but um it's yeah, interesting no, to it's, think it's true. that it, does, it goes from yeah. being she goes from being one thing to being like you know this whole other um yeah she's a really well drawn out character in the whole thing I think yeah, she does. She does definitely develop, but within yeah. that first sort of twenty minutes, we don't really get too much of a sense of her beyond the fact that she's her relationship to Alan. As you say, yep. it's established that she knows she's an expert in her field, yeah, um, and that she, you know, has shares his passion for obviously yep. dinosaurs. Mm. Um, but there isn't that same sort of thing. I, th- I think the central tension between the two of them is that she wants them to have a future which involves children. And yeah. he does not like children and is not good with children. Yeah. That's basically what we learn about them. Yeah. And then uh, Hammond in the opening, we don't learn any of that stuff we get to know later about his motivations behind building the park or yeah. or any of that. Uh, but we do get that he is kind of um, naively optimistic about yeah. the park. Cheery that... old man, basically. Yeah, and that yeah. he wants to entertain everyone, and he's very enthusiastic. Um, you know, he's he's absolutely certain they're going to love it, isn't he? Yeah, like that's basically what we sort of get from 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 the opening. Um, yeah. Apart from the fact that we also get that he's criminally negligent, and that his park has already killed <laughs> at least one person. Yeah, uh, but and he's <laughs> employed a skeleton staff to run like a multi-million-dollar installation. <laughs> And uh, has obviously not run background background checks on anybody <laughs> yeah. because you know uh, one the one key employee that's needed to run you know the the very complicated computer systems will betray him at you know the drop of a one point five million dollar hat. So, but it's it's the storm, right? I mean, the storm is is what causes a lot of the problems because that's why most of the staff leave. They all go on the boat. So yeah. you've got at the beginning of the film, you've got all these dudes in hard hats with guns and stuff, and they're like the uh, they're presumably people who would have been on site had yeah. uh, had the park not got cleared out. Yeah, and it's an interesting choice of Spielberg because. Um, you would think, and I think in the book there are a lot more people who get killed by dinosaurs and stuff, um, because you kind of, as a kid, you always want to see what Jurassic World later showed us, which yeah. is park full of visitors, dinosaurs going crazy, yeah, everyone's yeah. being killed by dinosaurs. Yeah. And Spielberg actually does everything he can at the beginning of the film to drain the island of people, yeah, uh, to 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 keep it to a very core number, a core group, yeah, you know. And it's, it's a kind of an interesting decision, right? Because he kind of takes a lot of uh, pieces off the board in terms of dinosaur death uh, victims, you know? Yes, yeah. 
Um, that's yeah. I I always really loved that though. I loved the sense that it was just like you're kind of stuck here, and there's not like some gung ho team of dinosaur security. It's just like a yeah. bunch of people, and you're kind of stuck there with them. I always really really love that kind of um setup. But I, I do think, equally yeah. love that. Um, you know, one of the real strong points about Jurassic World is that they don't shy away from having the dinosaurs openly attack tourists. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, their whole bit with the pterodactyls, just going for it, uh, on yeah. the, just, you know, on en masse, um, these bunch of tourists, and basically just killing loads of innocent people, I think is fantastic. <laughs> I think I think something that's that's um, met, that kind of gets ruined, I think, by the sequels, probably including The Lost World, because you have a lot of men with guns in The Lost World, is that when Spielberg kind of drains the island of all of these potential burly men with guns who would have been around otherwise, yeah, um, he evades the fact that these are basically animals and yeah. that basically you could shoot one in the head and it would die. Yeah. Right. He kind of like gets them out of the way. Right. And the thing is, is our characters don't get into proximity of guns until very late in the film. Yeah. And then when they have them, they're kind of at close quarters and then they're, they're not trained for guns. So they kind of don't yeah. really know what they're doing. Right. Yeah. And so kind of he 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 gets around the fact that the velociraptors could be very easily shot by, yeah. uh, by kind of removing a lot of the personnel who could do that right yeah and uh whereas in in jurassic world for example you've got squadrons of dudes firing guns at the dinosaur and it's just like an invincible dinosaur yeah um, <laughs> i think that kind of takes something it's away it's interesting um that the very opening scene is like all those people around like super security teams and yeah. who knows how dangerous these things are and he's armed and he knows and still, even with all that, a raptor still manages to exactly, kill someone, yeah. you know. And I'm sure, I, and I know he's all like, shoot her! And then you hear it getting shot at the very end of that scene, so you know that it gets killed. But by this point, it's too late. Joffrey the gatekeeper's already gone, you know, he's already been <laughs> eaten, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Pop culture's least despised Joffrey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... So we've got Grant. He, yeah, Grant's like me. He's a digger. He likes, yeah. uh, he, he doesn't like, like kids. He likes dinosaurs. Sattler's like him. Uh, Hammond's an enthusiastic boy. What's he doesn't that, like lawyers, what do we though. Learn about, he doesn't like lawyers. He doesn't like the blood-sucking lawyers. Yeah. Um, what do we learn about Malcolm on the plane? We learn well, that he likes chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's just, uh, he's just a big cowboy, really, isn't he? Yeah, is chaotician an actual thing? I probably not. I'm gonna look it up. I'm just gonna ask the thing that knows everything. Yeah, <laughs> chaotician. I don't even know how to spell it. Chaos without a titian. Uh, chaotician. But he's kind of billed to us as the rock star, isn't he? I mean, yeah. he's in a leather jacket. Uh, Hammond's like, I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. And this chaos theory guy is the bloke that the law firms brought along. He's the he's like Gennaro's guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really makes no choice. sense. You think it would kind of along. be uh, the other way around that you'd have Park owner who'd want someone uh, studied up in mathematics and kind of you know uh, the probability of things going wrong on his side to be like, well, I can show you statistics that show that doing this wouldn't be a problem. I mean, and the lawyer would just gun for like the easiest. He would just sort of want, you know, the dinosaur experts. I want he, dinosaur no, people. The lawyer would just bring like a theme park auditor. Right. 
That's yeah. what happened. <laughs> They'd just bring some auditors to come and like, and and what what basically that part of the film would be would be them going around with a clipboard, looking at signage and making sure the right date labels are on things. Yeah. Going like, <laughs> yeah. Oh well, when was this? When was this paddock last maintained? Yeah. Oh, it's been oh, two weeks got, since this last service or whatever. You've still got covers on your fire alarms. You're gonna have yeah. to remove those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's exactly who the lawyer should be bringing. Right? Yeah. But that's who they should be having on the, you know, yeah. the one who's like, oh well, this jeep, like, uh, it's not safe for tourists because it doesn't have any. Yeah. Uh, What's the seat belt? Uh, what volume of CO2 emissions does this jeep yeah. produce every quarter? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Making uh, sure that the Chilean sea bass has been properly refrigerated. Yeah. <laughs> does Chef Alejandro have a, yeah. a health and safety? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they come out during that scene at the end when um, when they're eating all the ice cream because it's defrosting, and they come out and insist that it all just has to go in the bin. <laughs> yeah, they just have to throw it away. No, you can't eat it. It needs to go in the bin. Yeah, before you um, <laughs> extract, you know, the human element out of this highly difficult situation can you please remove all the produce yeah, from can, uh you know dining areas can that be properly wasted off yeah <laughs> got to put it through you got to oh, put God. it through at zero yeah <laughs> waste off all the ice cream yeah oh dear that would have been a much better film frankly a much funnier <laughs> film but, so <laughs> we've kind of we've kind of somewhere we've along lost, the line yeah. we were talking about characters though we were talking yeah. about ian malcolm um and he's you know he's kind of um you know he's the mathematician chaotician he studies chaos theory and you know well i mean chaos theory broadly is just the idea that like nothing flaps its wings and all that stuff that he says yeah yeah yeah. it's like nothing can be predicted like it's well it's trying to predict the unpredictable isn't it it's trying to say like when you put sort of systems complex systems together how they'll behave and all that um and obviously, of course, in a Michael Crichton book, there's like a whole three chapters dedicated to that. And there's diagrams of like chaos theory at the beginning. Oh, it's like, like yeah. I, I skipped every other chapter of that book when I was a kid because I read yeah. that book back in the early 90s when I must have been like eight or nine years old. And every other chapter in the book is just hardcore maths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you see, I was a really precocious twat when I was like eight years old. So I read it with intrigue thinking, this is important. This is relevant. I can't skip this. Um, I can't just go for the dinosaurs just because I like dinosaurs. I have to get my head around chaos theory first. And now I think actually, no, that's bollocks. I just want to see dinosaurs. Well, I'm tempted to re revisit the book because I, you know, I love the film so much. My only memory of reading the book is like from so long ago. Yeah. That, uh, that, that, you know, maybe, maybe I'd understand the maths now. Probably not. I would um, still, I, as uh, as hardcore uh, Jurassic Park fan, um, I would pay for some community theatre to do Jurassic Park without any dinosaurs at all and just them talking about, <laughs> talking about chaos theory and maths. <laughs> like, I would pay good money to see that. I'd find that really interesting. What, with dinosaurs as the sort of hypothetical? That they're well, no, it's like sort of off-screen. It's like there would be, you know, on stage, there'd be sound effects, and then the characters <laughs> would run off, and then it would go, you know, curtains close, and then it comes back up, and they're just in, like, the dining room talking about everything that's happened, and then going yeah. into why that was wrong from a mathematical standpoint. <laughs> uh, uh, that's my dream. That's, That's my hammond desk ambition is to stage a math maths only Jurassic Park. <laughs> so here's here's a here's a criticism I would level at the first twenty minutes of Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. You've I think it sets up the theme very well. 
I think it establishes what we need to know about the characters pretty well. It establishes where we're going. It establishes what the problem with it's going to be with the death of the person at the beginning and technology not working and all that. It kind of establishes with Nedry um, and Dodgson, you, you understand the stakes and kind of that there's mm. someone now working on the inside trying to sabotage everything. So so kind of it, it sets up everything that we need it to set up before we first see that Brachiosaurus and, yeah. and have that kind of moment of wonder. Um if there is a little bit of fat on the bones here, who is that bloke who said Grant's like Grant's like me? He's a digger who's in that mine in Costa Rica, wherever they are. Like, right. who is he? Why is he in the film? Do we need him? Like, if you cut him out of the movie, yeah, what do we lose? Because um, I don't, I've never really understood that scene. Even as a kid watching it, I was always sort of like, "But who's this bloke? And why do we never see him again?" And all he tells us is that we get we get exposition, we get an info dump from the lawyer about how they need people to sign off on the park. Right? Yeah. But that's information we also get from Hammond when he talks to Grant yes. and Sattler, right? Um, you get yeah. you get this bloke telling you how Alan Grant's never going to go because he's a digger and he won't want to go to a theme park. But then he's wrong because Alan Grant does go like in the next scene. So he doesn't give us any insight into Alan Grant meaningfully. Right. right? He tells us he's a digger, but we see that happen in the next Mm. scene. And everything Gennaro gives us, we get from Hammond. So what do we gain from this scene? I suppose the only... uh, Well, I think a, a real... I mean, there are many strengths of Spielberg stuff, but I think one thing he always does really well which is kind of overlooked certain times is he does little visual cues for stuff really well i suppose uh, i don't disagree with anything you're saying about the scene but the one thing you do get is you see the amber for the first time which is a visual um kind of i mean it's sort of a link through the whole film because the very one of the very last shots is uh, hammond on the helicopter leaving and he's sort of looking mournfully at the amber and this was kind of his dream that he could do this and obviously then they when they're talking about how the dinosaurs are cloned and created, they uh, reference that again. And I know that's really not much of a justification for having a whole scene yeah. wrapped around the discovery of Amber. Although I think it's a nice thing because without it, you go straight into um, you'd go straight into that scene with Mr. DNA, and he's explaining everything, and there's no sort of. Uh, reference to that back in the film it's just you're in you're being explained the whole um creation of dinosaurs from start to finish you know whereas there's the little amber and you can go oh i remember that scene that's why that guy was in the mine because he was digging up amber and he's he works for hammond and he's digging up that it's uh, yeah it's a very small thing but i think it's key in terms of um allowing exposition to happen a bit more naturally rather than having a whole mr dna scene explaining dinosaurs being created um just going into that cold I think you're right. I think it gives the audience a frame of reference for the later Mr. DNA stuff because yeah. it mentions the Amber. I was thinking as a counterpoint to what you said that in the next scene with Hammond, if you just wanted to show the Amber and establish that early on, you yeah. could obviously show the one on his stick. Yeah. But I think you're right that having that scene specifically draws the audience attention to it. Yeah. And um, I think just kind of like pacing wise, it does it does allow that info dump to happen over a longer yeah. period of time and sort of sink in. And by the time we see Mr. DNA, we have that frame of reference for when he's like, oh, and we dig out of the ground and we find Amber and stuff. You go, oh, yeah, it's that bloke. Oh, I remember, yeah, yeah. No, I see where they do that. Yeah, I get that. I still yeah. I still think that there's probably a more elegant solution in yes, this. Because it does feel like a kind of random expository scene. Well, um, the more I suppose the more elegant solution would be cut the bit 
out of them riding uh, it, when they're riding in the jeeps to see the Brachiosaur, and Hammond and the lawyer have that exchange of you know I'll shut you down, blah 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 blah. You could probably cut that out, and then you get rid of you still have you know that set up as being that the kind of lawyers are on my back, the investors are on my back, and then you don't draw that out any further. Maybe, um, but having maybe, but having the, the the confrontation directly between the two of them gives it a bit more drama. No, that's and that true. whole sort of in forty eight hours, I'll be accepting your apology. Yeah, like, gives it yeah, kind yeah, of a yeah. ticking clock that these are the stakes. This is what he needs to do. Yeah, you know, this no, is the guy against him. No, you're absolutely right because I mean the the guy in the mines, he is a superfluous character. Like you never see him again. He's just there to sort of um, you know tee off with the lawyer a little bit i guess why does the defense. why does the lawyer need to visit him like what's the what's the in film kind of story reason why Gennaro would need to visit the dude who runs the digging operation well he's there he's there to see hammond and then um like when he gets there he's like hammond's not even here to see me like he's expecting oh, right. to see hammond directly so uh then he basically gets stuck with the mining guy um like assuming it's somewhere in the film obviously off camera it's like hammond had arranged to meet him at a mine right like why not yeah i think i get it i think what's happened here is that um he's on his kind of audit of the health and safety of jurassic park right he he's going before his visit to the actual island he's got a scheduled visit to the kind of um the other facilities right in the region that contribute to the island he's he's investigating the entire operation right yeah and that he gets there and there was never any intention from hammond to meet him there but his sense of sort of self-importance and of sort of um the the kind of the importance that he puts on um this this kind of legal audit taking place means that he's just personally a bit put out that hammond wouldn't come there because it's important that they do this thing yeah See what I mean? I think yeah, that's no, what's absolutely. happened here. I think yeah. that's what's going on. Definitely, yeah. Took me, took so, me, uh, took me about twenty years to to realise what the hell uh, Genero is doing. <laughs> what at was that site? Oh, yeah. I've cracked the code. Up to? Yeah, you've done. Maybe, it. You've sold apologies, apologies if you're listening and that was always just completely obvious to you. But I, I've only just realised why well, Genero was there. Do you know what? It's weird because I this film was the first film I ever saw in my life, and I probably watched it more than any film ever. When people tell me they haven't seen it, I'm that fucking guy who's like, oh, you got to see it. I'm gonna make you watch it. I can't talk to you until you've seen it yeah um and just watching the first 20 minutes again there's still stuff that i pick up on you know like you think you know it because you've been around it so long and you you take it you know for granted how you know that you just like oh i know everything but then you watch it and there's still little bits and pieces that you sort of pick up on the more you go with it um which i don't know whether that's you know a test i suppose it is really a testament to um it's like staying power but um, so I wouldn't beat yourself up too much for <laughs> overlooking the lawyer's <laughs> um, sort of game plan for um, ensuring the finances of this fictional theme park. I think I think, I, I think, I think you're in the clear. I think um, something to, to bring up with Jurassic Park is that the screenplay is uh, David. I'm probably mispronouncing his surname. It's David Coep, isn't it? Who did? Um, uh, I think it's Panic just David Room. Kep. Yeah, David, David Kep. Kep. It's David right. Kep and Michael Crichton both wrote right. the screenplay. Okay, yeah. because um, it's a really good screenplay, I think. Yeah, and um, it has some really bad dialogue in it. Like, and there's some dialogue in it that doesn't make any sense. Like, like, um, like a Alan Grant. <laughs> no, more like Alan Grant using the word raptor means bird of prey as evidence of something. Yeah. 
where it's no yeah. evidence of anything because it's just a name that people gave it. But he yeah. uses that as part of his dossier in favour of dinosaurs being from birds. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the the whole um, fact that sort of, oh, there are plants in this room, you pick them because they look good, but these are aggressive living things. And there are certain sort of strains of argument in the film that just sort of... Uh, I don't know. They, they, they kind of fall flat for me. They they don't seem like sure. uh, particularly well thought out. It's some some of those sort of sequences. But yeah. from a structural point of view, I think this screenplay is really really strong. Pretty like, airtight. I, yeah. I think that um, yeah. I mean even even accepting that I have my reservations about the 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 dig scene at the beginning, I think that this is just quite a lean film. I think it yeah. establishes in the first twenty minutes who the key players are. And more or less what they want, not that strongly in every case. Alan Grant more strongly than everybody else. Yeah. But Alan Grant, we definitely know his deal by the end yeah. of the first 20 minutes. And we have a kind of a good sense of the other characters and, and who they basically are. Even if it's just as kind of archetypes. Like we know that Goldblum's character is the funny one and he's crazy. We know that yeah. from the beginning, even if we don't know much more about the character and we know we're not supposed to like the lawyer because he's the lawyer you know we, we kind of know broadly what we're dealing with mm. um so yeah I, I think that as a as a 20 minutes as a as a holistic kind of taking a holistic view on that i, I think it's fairly strong yeah i would also say that i really like that it doesn't um shy away from talking about the science of it a little bit and like having discussions about why it shouldn't be done in, you know, like even when I was really young and watching it and I didn't really understand what they were talking about, like with regards to um, like the nature of things and, you know, all that stuff about like the rape of the natural world and all this stuff. I really like that they take scenes to sort of discuss that instead of just like go, going straight for the dinosaurs, you know, and it's like I really like that there is a sense of kind of um, foreboding on a kind of more conceptual level and intellectual level and it does it in a way it's written in a way without going full sorkin you know it doesn't like start mm. sort of really indulging in how much it knows about the stuff it's talking about it does it in a way that's like you know essentially a pleading thing of uh, trying to explain that this just won't work kind of thing um but it doesn't dumb it down like dinosaurs are gonna break out and kill people you can't do this you know <laughs> that's um, it's something it's something that the other films all of them um abandon completely isn't it i mean i, yeah. I have a i have a lot of time for the lost world i know a lot, I have of, a lot of time don't. for that yeah um but that film doesn't really revisit these things in the same way uh, it doesn't yeah. really do it. I mean, once it feels like what they do with all of the sequels is that um, now that the dinosaurs are established and that we basically know the whole deal, uh, it mm. now just is the roller coaster ride that critics accused the first one of being originally. Yeah, that's what it is now. It's, yeah. it's just a shitload of dinosaurs doing loads of crazy cool stuff and there's yeah. going to be loads of people dying and uh in the middle of it somewhere there's probably a family who need to uh learn how to better connect yeah. one another or something yeah but i think in like screenwriting terms that's a really good mix of things it's like there's you know sort of more uh interpersonal stuff with the relationships between the characters and then there's more external things like ideas about nature and science and kind of um you know the all these things and i think having all those going on at the same time is actually really strong screenwriting and even though i think lost world is uh, a david kept one as well and even though um yeah there are drawbacks to that film there is that sense of layers you know there is that sense of like dimension between 
um, like personal relationships and um, bigger, wider ideas about what this means. And it's uh, none of these things are ever kind of like, uh, I think they're never hammered to you because there is that balance and they can go between one. And when you start getting bored of the science, then you can go to something more kind of emotional. And before that becomes too sentimental, it becomes about like, you know, um, why this shouldn't have been done in the first place. And um, I think that's kind of the balance that makes the first one work so well. Mm. as opposed I've, to the sequels I've heard a lot of people over the years um, who've described Jurassic Park as being like B tier Spielberg the, right. the, they, that they kind of rate A tier as obviously being like E.T. Indiana yeah. Jones Jaws and that then Jurassic Park is on a kind of next notch down and I take real issue with that because I think I Jurassic Park it, yeah. is a perfect like little microcosm of what Spielberg is at his absolute best. Yeah. Like it is for me, it's the quintessential Spielberg movie. Like up yeah. there with those other ones that were mentioned. I'm not saying it's better than ET, although I think it is. But like, yeah. uh, like the, uh, you know what I mean. I, I think it no, kind of really yeah. hits hits all of those uh, beats that we would kind of consider Spielbergian and manages to to just be so uh, iconic in the way that those early Spielberg movies were. You know, in yeah. the way that you could... Because um, this is something I've talked about with you before as well, about um, how recent Spielberg, you don't really get those iconic moments. You know, no, there, there's yeah. not... there's not for, for, You know, as much as I enjoyed watching BFG, for example, um, The Simpsons couldn't do a parody of a scene from Spielberg's BFG. Right. Because yeah. there is no scene from Spielberg's BFG that resonates in the pop culture. There's yeah. nothing from The Terminal or Catch Me If You Can or, you know, a lot of these movies that has that kind of resonance. I think the yeah. closest you get to it in something from modern Spielberg is Minority Report because there was a kind of five minutes in time when everything you watched had those um, heads up displays with people moving yeah. screens around with their hands, uh, yeah. which you still see in stuff. And that's kind of very inspired by Minority Report whenever you see that. But yeah. apart from that, I think that um, you don't really get that from even, I mean, I enjoy Hook and I would say there's not really anything in Hook that's on that level that you could really reference. No, Whereas not really. Jurassic Park in the kind of the the raptor with the smoke against the glass, yep. um, the the, the, uh, the glass footprint of water. with the yeah the glass of water and the and the T Rex footprint in the mud and the kind of the ripples, um, the dinosaur chasing the jeep and the kind of being in the uh, wing mirror. There are yeah. loads and loads of scenes. Or clever girl, even that sequence. Yeah, there are loads of scenes in Jurassic Park that you could put in a Family Guy or put in a in a whatever, right. and people would would get the reference because it's kind of part of pop culture. And yeah. in the same way that Indiana Jones running away from the boulder or, you know, E.T. flying on the BMX bike against the moon or, yeah. um, you know, the, the... The fin from Jaws. Yeah, or, or, yeah. The, or the music really from the Jaws. Music, yeah. And and, and, and I, I for that reason, uh, I kind of, I put Jurassic Park on that pedestal, I think, because I think it's got that pop culture reach, you know, yeah. that a lot of things just don't have, you know. Like, yeah. for example, um, I again, I love The Lost World. The Lost World doesn't have that really. Yeah, no, uh, a little bit. There are has, moments. You know, don't go into the long don't grass. Don't go into the long grass, and yeah. the bit where the one of the bits, the the bit that's the best in the Lost World, actually, from a kind of filmmaking point of view, that's just I think the absolute strongest, just in terms of Spielberg um, making suspense and everything, has arguably yeah. nothing to do with dinosaurs, and it's the bit where Julianne Moore is on the glass as the back of the oh, trailer. Oh god, yeah, off now, the that bit's amazing, and yeah. that bit is so well done, and that bit you actually do see reference in other things, not necessarily as a direct reference but where it inspired some very yeah. similar scenes in other movies and tv 
shows. Yeah. But, you know, not on the level, I don't think, as the things in the first Jurassic Park that, that you can really see referenced mm. and stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, from what we discussed, I've kind of just figured that, well, I've, it's just made me think about what he does best or one of his real strengths is obviously he has no uh, a shame about his sort of sense of wonder when it comes to cinema and creating this uh you know like instilling this sense of wonder in audiences and creating big epic moments and really emotional swells and this thing but as a sort of someone with attention to detail he goes uh quite overlooked i think because everything we've discussed the strengths of uh the first 20 minutes or the film in general is all about kind of details like he handles exposition in a way that's quite nuanced as opposed to um broad strokes of um you know this these these people and all those but none of those details um necessarily become esoteric they're still um kind of sort of front and center you know there's there's you don't there's no distance between these other people you know he's very good at creating uh, a, a quite genuine link between you and the people you're following or the thing that you're watching um, mm. And I think that's one of those things that's probably quite uh, underrated about him is uh, the that attention to these little details. And I do see it in a lot of his other films as well, um, Jaws especially, but things like Minority Report as well. It's like those things that are parodied and those cultural things, they're, you know, the glass of water, uh, all these things, they're kind of uh, little embellishments that kind of really make a scene work, you know. I think it's interesting you sound underrated, and I think that that's very true. Um, I think Spielberg is possibly the most overrated and the most underrated filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and, and it's it's really I think really strange. I think it depends who you're speaking to because I think that there's a um, there's a kind of general element among kind of the non cinephile populace, if you like, where mm. he's probably the idea the, the kind of the quintessential idea of a director right when yeah he's probably the most famous director and therefore a lot of people might say oh well clearly one of the best directors and i think yeah. when you're coming from that end of the spectrum um then it's possible to say oh well you know maybe maybe there's a little bit of him, of him being a bit overrated there in terms of kind of the the way he's perceived maybe in the broader pop culture but then i think on that level maybe as as files um he's underrated for sure like yeah. i think that we get a bit snobby maybe about some of his movies and that actually he's uh really um criminally underrated filmmaker yeah. in a lot of ways and i think i think he's I think he should be appreciated more for, and, and this is a recurring thing. Every time I've ever spoken about Spielberg, I end up saying this, but like, I think he needs to be appreciated more for the Jurassic Parks and not the Schindler's Lists, you know? Yeah. Like, I think that there are better filmmakers out there um, making those sorts of movies, making the making the dramas, making, you know, make, I've not seen yeah. The Post yet. By all accounts, The Post is supposed to be very good movie, good performances, mm, yeah. finely made film. But it's exactly the kind of middle-brow drama that, that, frankly, I just don't get excited about and that yeah. you could probably imagine being made by a lot of other people. I mean, he's going to be very polished, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Whereas Jurassic Park, E.T., Close Encounters, these movies are Spielberg movies with a capital yeah. S, right? Well, and they yeah. are, you know, they are the, they're the movies only he makes. And mm. I wish he'd make more movies like that. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% with you on that. Although I, I would attest to enjoying... I do enjoy things like, I, I, you know, I have kind of a soft spot for Munich, even though it is exactly what you're talking about, really overblown, 
kind of overdrawn drama that uh, doesn't really sit well within his, you know doesn't really suit his strengths necessarily i think there are things about it that are really interesting um but there are there are definitely other people out there who do that kind of film a lot better than he does and um yeah, I don't there's, really know. There's a very, uh, yeah. there's a very interesting thing in Munich where, because one of the recurring themes of Spielberg is, um, you know, he places children in in play in peril, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, you can see that in everything, and and you know, Schindler's List with the girl in the red coat and all this, and and you could make an argument definitely for some of it being um, maybe a bit easy or or, or too sort of cloying, but right. what the, the scene I always remember from Munich is where. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be fuzzy on the details because it was years ago I saw it, but it's they're outside an apartment building in a car and they've rigged yeah. the apartment building to blow up or something. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they realize a child's gone into the apartment and there's yeah. all of this tension over whether or not they're going to accidentally kill this little girl. Yeah. And uh, it's, it is exactly sort of the worst excesses of Spielberg when it comes to that sort of yeah. cloyingness, but it's, but it's, perfectly done like it's really well it's yeah from, probably from the a best filmmaking the film. perspective it's the best scene in the film and it's yeah, like yeah. it's very very tight and i think that he excels when it comes to um that sort of you know a kid in peril uh yeah hitchcockian almost isn't it I suppose. yeah definitely oh no very yeah very much so. yeah. that whole scene is rich rich in hitchcockian um tempo <laughs> so how do we I, this is obviously only the second episode how how do we go about wrapping this up? Because I, I don't know, some some podcasts uh, arrange things into a list. I mean, do we want to be putting these into a list and ranking the top 20, uh, the, the opening 20 minutes of movies? Are we, oh. are we giving it a final rating? Are we giving it a... Is there some way no. we can kind of put a well, cap okay. on it? What what have we learned? I think that's what have we learned? That's good. What have we learned? What have we learned? Um, you know, so um, Spielberg, as a director... Um, good at nuance despite his reputation as essentially a confectioner he's actually good at very fine details uh, especially when it comes to people and the link between audience and character yeah and how that carries you through a uh, film and helps you explore its themes without becoming preachy or kind of um overbearing at any point and it's still obviously very enjoyable and yeah i think he gives the the you know the things you were talking about where the real pop culture hooks, the things that kind of stay with people, that's down That's down to his eye for detail and bringing a scene like a T-Rex, uh, a giant 50-foot monster escaping from a cage, um, you know, with just a single glass of water, he can, you know, build that scene um, like immaculately to the point where it will become sort of referenced decades after the fact. Um, so those are kind of my takes away. I mean, I'm not necessarily referencing things in the first 20 minutes, although <laughs> those those characteristics are in the first 20 minutes. You yeah. know, so, I mean, uh, he, he manages to make um, a film about dinosaurs. Uh, the first 20 minutes of a film where the cell is dinosaurs, really interesting um, from a character point of view by using an eye for kind of like small character traits uh, not hammering themes home, building things slowly, you know, starting off quite high tempo and then sort of bringing it down and uh, introducing characters through little exchanges and, um, yeah, kind of little uh, foreshadowing and all the rest of it. And he's kind of set up the whole rest of the film in these 20 minutes. And by the 20 minute mark, he's right, right, dinosaurs, time for dinosaurs. Yeah, um, so I think that's quite admirable, really. Although I would say that because I love this film. So. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I say that either way. 
I I'm impressed by because obviously I haven't watched this film in with this opening 20 minutes in mind before and and thinking mm. about this specific question and I'm impressed by the fact that the 20 minutes section ends literally with the appearance of the brachiosaurs like just before yeah. we see them because I think it's really amazing how um, we go from, and I think he does it by having that raptor bit at the beginning, because I think otherwise it would test the audience a little bit. I think, especially the younger part of the audience, maybe even me as a kid watching it, I think if if you were watching this first 20 minutes of this movie about dinosaurs and you're like, oh God, where are the dinosaurs? But he manages, he gives you just enough flavor of the dinosaurs at the beginning. He gives you um, that moment of tension. He gives you a, a mortality. He gives you a gunshot. Uh, yeah. He gives you um, the entire plot of the movie in a microcosm in that opening scene yes. um, and then spends the next 20 minutes just setting up the human element. And I think it's the human element of the film which has been downplayed the most or, or ignored the most um, mm. by, by critics of the movie. And yeah. I think that it's best exemplified by the bit you brought up originally of um, the bit of the seatbelt. Because yeah. I think that there are some moments in cinema where whether that's in the screenplay, whether that's Spielberg, whether Sam Neill played a part in it, who knows what happened and, and where that comes mm. from. But I think there are some moments in movies that are really um, kind of transcendent where you're able to get across character detail in um, moments you yeah. know, that tell you everything. And yeah. I think um, more than anything, I think that's what this podcast will probably zoom in on more and more over movies is, yes. is what you learn from those moments. And I think in the first 20 minutes of Jurassic Park, that's the standout moment in, in as far as um, it does just tell you in a little, uh, you know, in a, in a sentence, you know, this, who this guy is, right. Yeah. Just says to you like, this guy's practical. He's, he might not, he might not be very good with machines, but he's practical and he can get stuff done. And he doesn't yeah. panic. He doesn't panic in a uh, dangerous situation. And it just yeah. tells you that in a moment, you know, rather than I think a lot of movies would have somebody say that. But I'm like, how many Tom Cruise movies have you seen where somebody would just tell somebody else that's what his character's like? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jack Reacher, uh, that guy, yeah. that guy doesn't get flustered. He's a tough guy yeah. in a bad situation. <laughs> Sorry, break open a window <laughs> yeah, once with yeah. his bare hands. Um, I saw him I, make. I saw him make a makeshift seatbelt during high turbulence. <laughs> He's one cold <laughs> SOB. <laughs> that son of a bitch climbed a tree and slept in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that boy, that yeah. boy'd still be up in that tree if it was for Jack Reacher. <laughs> <laughs> Retail Jurassic Park, but as a story being told about Jack Reacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, there was a couple things I was going to add just to this sort of wrap up. Is, yeah. Um, uh, something I read in a screenwriting book once, which is the only way you get to know uh, characters is by putting them in kind of um, compromised situations, you know, putting them up against the wall. Um, and I know that seems obvious to say uh, as just generally like that screenwriting 101, how you develop stories and characters is through conflict. But I always look for it just from a character perspective in films, like mm -hmm. what how screenwriters treat when they put their characters in a corner, you know, someone like uh, James Bond, he's never in a corner. Like when he's in a corner, you just know he's going to sort it out. So how does that affect, um, you know, how you go along with a film or do you enjoy it less? And um, something like Jurassic Park is essentially like ordinary people, just like scientists being put in a sort of, um, you know, very 
high risk situation where there's a real threat of death and what how do they behave in these situations and i think for that um that's why this film holds up so strongly is because it's ordinary people in this extraordinary situation and the way it's written that they deal with this i think is what endears you to those characters Hmm. um and that is a strength i don't really feel for something like Jurassic World, where it's sort of a gung-ho life force like Chris Pratt, as enjoyable as he is, and he is, um, just essentially kind of, he coasts a little bit through the film. Like, there's no sense of peril to him, and like you say, he hasn't really changed by the end of it. He's not like... I think that question um, of how do the characters respond to, um, I guess, to pressure or strain or or danger um, is a key one, which we should probably employ generally on on this podcast. And I think it's interesting looking at all the characters in the film through that lens, because um, Malcolm, when he's under threat to his life, he makes jokes. Yeah, uh, Sattler rolls up her sleeves and tries to find a practical solution. Alan Grant yeah. rushes to help people. Gennaro, uh, yeah. his big sin in the film really is not that he's a lawyer; it's that he runs off and abandons the children. Yeah, um, and that's and that's sort of why he gets his kind of grisly toilet comeuppance because of the fact that he went and hid and abandoned yeah. the kids in the car. You know, whereas mm-hmm. Alan Grant sees the kids in danger in the car and runs towards the kids. Yes. And that's, and that's kind of the heart of the movie. And that's what tells you what you need to know about those characters. Yeah. Um, one last little thing, which I never, ever noticed before, but um, watching the HD copy of Jurassic Park really close up. Uh, when they go into the uh, trailer, when uh, Hammond's just landed and he's rummaging around in their fridge, there's a news clipping on the fridge that says space aliens stole my face. <laughs> and I really, really like that. <laughs> and I'd never seen that before. Um, and I thought that was really great. So yeah, uh, details and characters under pressure. Those are the lessons to learn. From Jurassic Park. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think space aliens stole my face is good, as good a place as any for us to uh-huh. wrap up. Yeah. Um, for, for a time there, for a time there, we seemed relatively digression free and heading to a sweet hour and then, yeah. uh, and then we allowed a bit of a Munich diversion and, and, and went all around the houses. But you know, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I think we're we're a good length. We're a good length. We're a good length. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening uh, for to this uh, latest episode of Twenty Minutes In. You can find Twenty Minutes In on uh, Acast for Android, and uh, are we now on? Are we now on iTunes? Tom, we're on iTunes. Yeah. We're on iTunes, and uh, more platforms on the way when we sort of figure things out. I think they're uh, aiming to be on a couple of others, maybe Stitcher and, and things, yeah. but uh, stay tuned. Uh, yeah. I'm also working on a website for the podcast, which will feature uh, blog posts about the new episodes and uh, maybe other content as and when. Um, so in the meantime, I think we're aiming for this to be a pretty bi-weekly as an ongoing yes. concern. So uh, yes. th- that's it. That's it from, uh, from me. And uh, yeah. we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, see you later.